go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. Well, hello, my name is Hal Bryan and I'm one of your hosts on the Green Dot. I'm senior editor at EAA for print and digital content and publications. Here on my left, it's... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And Chris, today we have a guest. I always say I love the episodes where we get to have some guests. And uh, today we're very fortunate to have... Um, someone who has a, a great story that really kind of spans all of the general areas of, e, of EAA, uh, and that is Mr. Ron Strauss. Ron, thank you for coming all the way up here to Oshkosh to spend some time with us. Well, thanks, uh, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. And as we're uh, recording this, of course, this will air uh, quite a bit later, but as we're recording this, Ron, you're on site to speak uh, this evening, Thursday the 20th, at uh, the EAA Aviation Museum. Yeah, I'm looking forward to tonight. That should be a, should be a great turnout and a fantastic presentation. So, Ron, let's uh, let's go back to the beginning. I always like to do that before we uh, uh, before we go anywhere else. And uh, you've had a long career in aviation. Was it something that interested you as a kid? Uh, yes, I'd done my first flight when I was probably uh, seven or eight years old, and I immediately fell in love with aviation. Wow, do you remember what kind of airplane it was? It was a Stenson 108. Oh, nice. Probably a yeah. Franklin 165. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Wow. That's neat how that sticks with you. Was that a family friend, or did you go to an event somewhere It was at Sac City Airport in Iowa, and uh, my father knew the owner of the airport, and uh, so he took us up and really enjoyed it. Wow. I fell in love with flying from then on. And what was your, what was your path after that? And you said you were about eight years old? Did I, did I eight, or, eight or nine or okay. something like that. So what was, what was next for you? Uh, I went in the Air Force when I was 17, and I was underage. So uh, my parents had to sign for me, and uh, they weren't really happy campers. <laughs> but anyway, I started off, I went to uh, aircraft and power plant school with the Air Force and uh, began my career on the B-47. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. The Stratojet. Yeah. You know, the B-52 gets all the attention, but to me, uh, and... I've got a brother out there who's listening who is going to be cringing when I say this, but the B-47 is, the, is a much nicer-looking airplane. <laughs> Swept wing. It always reminded me of a shark, something yeah. like that. It looked like it was a – always looked to me like it was a fighter pilot's bomber. Yeah. It always reminded me – it always looked like uh, basically someone's hood ornament came to life. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, it was, uh, you could chrome it and put it on the, the hood of a 48 Buick or an Oldsmobile <laughs> yeah, exactly, or something. You know? yeah. That's a really good uh, point. I, I think people argue that that was one of the most beautiful airplanes ever built. Yeah. the B-47. Well, just... the Boeing done a lot of experiment on the B-47, and, of course, that came into the 707. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, sweat wings and, yeah. and everything else. Yeah. So how did you uh, – so you're, you're an AMP, and you said you're your crew chief on B-47? Yeah. And then how did uh, – what was your path from there into uh, eventually becoming a flight engineer? Well, uh, in the mid-'60s, if you had a certain career field, which I did – and you volunteered, uh, I became a flight engineer on a C-141A model. And I flew that as a flight engineer for nearly four years out of California to Vietnam and back, basically. We had maybe Travis Air Force Base out yep, there? Yep, Travis. Okay. From uh, 66 to 70. Wow. That's yeah. really remarkable. Now, would you have, as a, as a flight engineer, forgive my ignorance here, would you, would you have needed to have been commissioned for that? Was that no? I was a tech sergeant. Okay, a tech sergeant. Yeah. I was wondering how that. Uh, it wasn't clear how that worked for flight crew yeah. for flight engineers. No, flight engineers were all enlisted. Interesting. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about the those flights? You you, were, you told me a little bit uh, earlier that you guys were pretty busy flying those one forty ones. Well, uh, I flew it from sixty six to the beginning of seventy, and we'd fly from Travis to Honolulu, and pick up fuel and uh, then go on to Wake Island where we change planes and we'd crew rest at Wake. Then we'd go into the Philippines at Clark and uh, crew rest there and then go from there in country up to Yokota in, uh, near Tokyo and crew rest, change planes, and then we'd fly hopefully nonstop from there to Travis, which was about 10 hours. But sometimes due to the winds or weight we carry, we couldn't make it. We'd have to stop at Anchorage. Yeah, you know, on the outbound flights with all those stops, that's just a factor of winds. 
that you, you no, had to the, stopping those, Honolulu for fuel and things like that? It was refueling. Refueling. And changing crews. But you were able to go nonstop on the way back. Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah. Interesting. And interesting is that you're you're making ground stops for, for fueling. Were you mid-air refueling at any of these points? No. That airplane, that was the A model. Oh, the A model wasn't equipped. No. Ah. Interesting. It was a B then model. They, then they stretched it. Stretched and, it and put the air refueling in it. And then they made a C model, which was the new cockpit without a navigator. And uh, they used the INS. Ah, gotcha. Are there any A models surviving on display? Is the one that's on display at Travis now, is that an there, A model? There's, it is an A model. Well, it's a B model, probably. Okay. It's a tail number 8088. And it's called the Golden Bear. It's the first 141 that was ever delivered to Travis. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. It's at the museum there. So. Yeah, I was out at that museum, gosh, it's probably been 12, 13 years ago, yeah. years ago now, and it was... Uh, you know, it was a little bit of a, an event to get on, just checking in at the guard area yeah. and everything else, and then uh, with some of the new security regulations, it was kind of unfortunate in that sense. But it worked great for me because I was I was the literally the only person there, wandering in out of the gift shop and wandering the aircraft park and everything. <laughs> Good pictures. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> if, only I, if only I had my iPhone 10 back <laughs> yeah. in 2006 or whenever that was. Now, your one of your aircraft, one of your 141s, uh, is actually at. Uh, the Museum of Aviation at Warner Robins, right? It is, yeah. And I got on that. It was funny, but that particular airplane, uh, I noticed uh, the tail number. And I said, geez, I remember that tail number, even though it's been 40-some years. And I got my Form 5 out, and there it was. So I got to get on the airplane uh, Veterans Day of last year. And I sat in the same seat that I sat in oh, wow. 40, 50 years ago. Pretty cool. Isn't that something? Yeah. Now, another question about being a, a flight engineer. So you're a tech sergeant, and um, you know, in, the, in that era, 60s and 70s, into what, the early, mid-80s, when you had three-man crews in an airliner, there was a progression, sort of flight engineer and you know, first officer and that sort right. of thing. Uh, were you so your your rated air crew as a flight engineer? Did you actually do flight training, or was it specifically focused focused on engineering and systems? It was engineering and systems. Okay, interesting. Yep. So, at what point during all of this are you going out and learning to fly yourself? Well, in 1969, I decided to uh, terminate when my enlistment came up, and uh, I went and got my private pilot's license and my flight engineer's rating and my AMP rating. And then, because uh, I knew I was getting out in 1970, and then uh, I took the GI Bill. If you had a private pilot's license, you uh, could use the GI Bill, and they would pay 90% of your flying. Gosh. So I got all my ratings that way. Oh, that's terrific. Pretty neat GI Bill, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, much so. it's, it's the least the country could do, frankly, <laughs> yeah. uh, for anyone who serves. Um, so from there, then, uh, you, did you get a civilian job flying, or what was? Well, that? I got all my ratings, and uh, then I went and got hired as a flight engineer on the Convair 990, flying out of Berlin, Germany. Okay, what airline would that have been? Was it? It was with Modern Air Transport. Oh, it no longer exists. Okay. And uh, then I got furloughed after nine months, and then I flew the Convair 880 for Lanika Airlines, which was a flag carrier of Nicaragua out of Miami, and then I got recalled to, with the Modern Air on the 990, and uh, I didn't accept it as the engineer, but I uh, accepted as a first officer. Oh, and so then I flew the 990 until 1975, I think it was. Really? Wow. Now, the 880 and the 990 are pretty interesting airliners. They uh, Not a lot of either of them built, like 65 880s or something like that, yeah. and I think 35, 37, 990s. Um, beautiful airplanes, and yeah. uh, and really prior to or setting aside Concorde, setting aside or the TU one forty four, weren't they the fastest uh, sort of production airliners or right up there? The eight eighty was not, and the eight eighty M was not, but the nine ninety was fast. I mean, really fast. We would. Uh, I was telling Chris earlier that going into Berlin, we had to fly the corridor back then at below 10,000 feet. And by company SOP, we would fly at barber pole. 
which was uh, I think 427 knots, <laughs> and uh, and it, we would uh, we'd fly the corridor all the time, right at max speed it would go, and you could only deviate so far. So if there was a thunderstorm there, you had to slow it up and uh, penetrate it because the Russians would come after you. Right. So and we could cruise the 990. Uh, well, fuel was starting to get expensive at 80 back then. But if we were late, we would cruise at 85, 86. Wow. And then on descent, we'd get it up to 92. And it would be going so fast that it would suck the nose gear on lock. So we just put the gear handle up and <laughs> proceed on. Really? Yeah. It was it was, a, it was a expensive airplane to operate, though. Sure. A ton of fuel yeah. burn, but. Bunch of fuel. Wow. And of course, for if someone's listening is a little bit unclear, when you're talking 0.85, 0.86, and then 9.2 on a descent, we're talking Mach numbers. So you're you're getting right up there in the transonic range yeah. at that point. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> that is Very just too cool. Yeah. The, nine, the 990 was a lot harder to fly than the 880 because the 880, like the 707 and DC-8, it had a 35-degree wing sweep. On the 990, it had 39 degrees. And uh, it would—it was just about like a delta wing, and uh, it was a bear to fly. It had a tendency you'd set it up on ILS to be perfect set up, and it would start the Dutch row on you. And if you didn't stop the Dutch row, uh, you're in trouble, big trouble. And there were some high-profile accidents. Yes, uh, there was with the yeah. 990 as well. That's amazing to think that you know, just that four degrees extra wing sweep would make a difference, but, but. There's a reason that everybody else was sort of standardizing right around that 35-degree range. Yeah, and the problem, see, the DC-8 and 707 would carry 189 people, and the 990 would only carry 149. So you, you spotted them 50 people. Well, that's a lot of money, revenue. Yeah, so. absolutely. Now, was it the – what we were talking earlier, the 880 had the uh, – didn't have slats. It had a clean wing, and then the others. Yeah, the 880 had a slick wing. And uh, the 880M had an extra center tank and Kruger flaps. And then the 990 had, of course, the Kruger flaps. But it was just the 990 that uh, really gave you the trouble at the lower speeds. The 990, and, yeah. Wow. It was a bear to fly, but it was fun. Uh, we landed lots of times at max gross weight, uh, structural gross weight. And I think rest speed was 150 knots or something like oh, that. Geez. It was high. <laughs> So, and so, it had it had nose wheel brakes. And oh, did it really? No other commercial airliner that I know of has front wheel brakes. That's really interesting. Yeah. So if you're talking your F speed of 150 knots, is that is that putting you at 200 knots on on final? If you're 1.3 times or. No, no, that was. Oh, that uh, was that was your the ref ref speed. I was yeah. going to say but, the stall speed right. was a lot less than that. Sure. Sorry. Oh man. So. Uh, <clears throat> When you were flying out of Miami for this Nicaraguan carrier, where were, were you just going back and forth to like Managua or someplace? Or well, we flew Miami, going? Managua, to San Salvador, to Mexico City, and then reverse course. Wow. And I got hijacked one time when I was furloughed and working for Lanika. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Gee, Chris, do you think we should ask him about this? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> it's, it's unanimous. How, how did, can you walk us through how that happened? And... Well, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um I was furloughed from Modern Air, and so I was qualified both to fly the uh, as a pilot and the flight engineer. So in 1974, uh, what happened? They had a Christmas party for ambassadors and stuff like that, and they had a lot of, of problems down in Nicaragua at that time. So uh, what happened is uh, they came in. And they shot one guard, killed him, and then they took the prisoners, uh, hostages, and they wanted to release 20 prisoners, political prisoners. And uh, the deal was that uh, they didn't want any Nicaraguan on the flight, period. So two Americans, uh, myself and one other pilot, and... Uh, I think the other engineer was Venezuelan or whatever. But anyway, so we sat down there for three days, and then we had to fly him out of there. And it was pretty interesting because they transported him from like a, a crew bus, and they had a priest and a monsignor. And uh, previous to that, we had three of us in the cockpit, and uh, they all made us 
strip down, check this for weapons or whatever. And then I had a burp gun at my head on takeoff. And uh, we took off and uh, went to uh, Cuba and uh, landed there. And uh, they had uh, the Americans, uh, America flew down five million bucks because General Somoza didn't want to pay him any money. So they had the guns, the five uh, million bucks, and we landed at, uh, it was pretty neat because my main job was. <laughs> That's not what you say after a hijacking for crying out Well, loud. <laughs> I mean, uh, my job was mainly, uh, everybody spoke English. Mm-hmm. And my job was to make sure they knew, because we didn't know where we were going. We assumed it would be Cuba. Sure, that was sort of day we yeah, We didn't have the range, we didn't have the charts or anything but Cuba. So anyway, uh, there's only one major checkpoint between Managua and Havana, and that's Swan Island. And uh, I showed uh, the hijackers, or whatever you want to call them, where we're at. And uh, then they weren't convinced that we were at Cuba. So we said, well, we'll just give you a buzz job. And we're about put the wing in the in the airport sign. I mean, <laughs> big, big sign there says uh, Jose, I think it was... Uh, Martinez International, I can't remember for sure. And uh, so they were convinced. We landed. So you of course just they, put a low approach to this airplane. Right? Oh, yeah. Screaming Buzzed it right at the way. tower. to make. And I was pointing at the tower to sign to make sure that they understood it. And they, they were convinced. So we landed, oh and they gosh. took the, the guns off, and then they took the money off, and then they took the prisoners off. And then we were ready to get out of there. And uh, they said, no, no, you can't take off. And we waited and waited, and they said, no, come inside. We don't want to go inside. We want to take <laughs> off, you know. So finally, we had to go inside. And they sat down and fed us. You know, they show us how nice it was, all the nice silverware and everything, you know. And uh, so we kept saying, well, we're ready to go. No, no, you got to wait. So finally, we got the airplane, you know, and we're ready to go and start up clearance, you know. And uh, so we started engines without startup clearance. We just heck with it. And uh, so we were ready, taxi. And they said, no, don't taxi. So we wait a few minutes. We're ready, taxi. No, don't taxi. Yeah, we're going to taxi and take off. No, he said, you take off and we'll send the MiGs after you. So we thought, ooh, boy, this is interesting. So we knew that, we thought anyway, that the Navy, which Key West was only 90 miles from there, was monitoring all this conversation. So we debated... We figured, well, we'll just take off anyway and suck the gear up and keep it right on the ocean and drive it as hard as it would go and uh, see if we could get into U.S. ADIS before the MiGs catch us. And we were debating back and forth, and uh, finally I said, well, why don't we just wait? And uh, if we see the Jeeps coming back, uh, we know there's a problem. We'll just take off anyway. And... uh, the guy says, yeah, but they'll block the runway. I says, we'll just take off on the taxiway. Hell with them. <laughs> you know? And then, uh, so then they finally said, okay, you're cleared to taxi. Take off. And they have to say it twice. We took <laughs> off, sure. you know, and then we went back to Managua. And that's where I met General Samosa. He came in and thanked us. And really? It was all over. Wow. That's amazing. You know, <laughs> in, in retrospect, obviously, you know, the climate was very di- different in Nicaragua at that point than it would have been 10, 20 years later. But... Still, I, I would thinking, you know, I've got America 90 miles away. I just want to get there and get on the ground and <laughs> yeah, go the, have a Big Mac or something. Yeah, the, the alternative would be getting shot down. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I'm thinking yeah. going back to Managua versus once you're out of Cuba, just yeah. just get me to the nearest friendly place. But you wow. just went back to Managua and back to, back to work? Well, we went back to Managua, and then I spent the night there. And the next day, uh, of course, they, uh, they gave me three bottles of rum in Cuba and a box of Havana cigars. And I thought, well, hell, that's pretty cool. You know, and then we it's just— It's a standard uh, hijacking victim. Yeah, back. right. <laughs> yes. And then we deadheaded back on uh, Pan Am and uh, went through customs. And he says, what do you got there? And I says, well, I got three bottles of rum and a box of Havana cigars. Oh, no. Well, you can't claim that. I said, hey, oh, I just got hijacked yesterday. I mean, what the heck, you know? And uh, Customs took it. Are you oh. serious? Yeah. So, you know, they, they probably smoked them and had, oh. a, had rum that night. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh. Do we start a, a GoFundMe or something? Yeah, to, get, to get a Buy box this of, guy another box of yeah, cigars? Yeah. Now that they're a little bit easier to get again? <laughs> yeah. Or 
they were easier to get and maybe they aren't anymore. <laughs> Two boxes. I need a box. Yeah, that's, that's only fair. I've got one Cuban at my desk right now, actually. All right. Believe we know what we're not. doing after this. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's amazing! I'm, I'm, well, I'm drained. See what I mean? We're, we're this far in, and we haven't even talked about but, about you know yeah, who. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> actually, before we do get into that, I, I do want to ask. Uh, so your 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 air crew in the Air Force, you get your your private, you get ratings. Uh, you're, you're flying the great Convair hardware. Um, are you flying privately during this time as well? You- uh, yes, I was a flight instructor back in 1970, and I kept that active until just a few years ago. Wow, that's fantastic. So whenever I get furloughed from the airlines, I would go back flight instructing. Right. And I enjoyed it. Uh, didn't make any money at it, but <laughs> so I think I was making $5 an hour back then. Wow. Now, did you have airplanes of your own at this time? Yes, private? I owned – no, uh, not until 1985. Okay. I, I bought an Acrosport two. And I flew that for a couple, three years. Then I got a Skyboat, which I really liked. And then I got a T6, and then I got a Super Cub, and then a Cessna 170B. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Uh, all tail draggers. Well, in other words, all real airplanes. Right, Chris? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> Although no one's going to look the, the 880 or the 990 in the face no. and tell it it's not a real airplane. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's jump back then. And... Uh, Go back to your professional career after the after the hijacking. What what's next? Well, uh, I flew the 880 a lot with Lanika, and then I flew uh, the 880 for junkets, and that's where I met the broker, where I got the connection to the Elvis thing. Wow! Uh, oh, can you tell us like what? How did that come about? How did how did you interview? Uh, you know, how did that all go down? Well, it was pretty interesting. Because uh, I was working on a Convair 880 to get it ready to go on a junket. And I, the broker came back, and it was a holiday. And he said, what are you doing working on a holiday? And I said, well, the airplane, we're leaving tomorrow, so it's got to get ready today. So we talked and uh, liked each other, and I'd done a few favors for the broker. Probably some I shouldn't have done, but I did. <laughs> and uh, we became pretty good friends. So... Uh, you know, he says, I'm going to sell Elvis an airplane. And I says to myself, well, yeah, everybody's going to sell Elvis an airplane. Right. You know? Now, at no point did you say Elvis who? Yeah, uh, that was, yeah. That, didn't have you to. You didn't have to yeah. at that point, definitely. Uh, so uh, he said, would you like to fly it? And I said, well, sure. I was flying junkets. So anyway, uh, then we didn't talk for two or three months uh, anything about Elvis. And he called me up, and he says, get a crew ready. And uh, so about two or three months later, he called me up and he says, say, we're going up for an interview tomorrow. He says, you got the names of the crew? And I said, geez, it's been four or five months. Uh, I don't know if they're still available. So I got a hold of two of my friends. We flew the 880 and the 990, well, the 990 together. And uh, I says, hey, we're going up tomorrow to get an interview with Elvis. And they said, whoa, we're ready. So we airline up to Memphis, and we go to the mansion, and they expected us, and we went back in the back, and uh, Vernon Presley, Elvis's father, he had a um, an office in back, and it was sort of split. It was uh, a windowed petition where you sat. So the other pilot went in for an interview. We had agreed on uh, the – I asked the broker, I said, how how's these interviews go? He said, I don't have a clue, he says, but just make sure you know how much money you're going to ask from him. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we sat down as a crew, and we figured, well, we'd ask this amount. So the other pilot went in for the interview, and he lasted about two or three minutes, and that was it. I said, Alan, how'd it go? I don't know. So it was my turn. Went in there, met Vernon Presley, and he says, so I got two questions. And I says, well, Go. He says, you know, if we hire you as a pilot, you do the flying, we do the entertainment. Yes, sir, no problem. He said, how much money you want to make? And I told him. And that was it. I thought, damn, that, that, that was either my best or my worst. I don't, I don't have a clue. <laughs> Two-question interview. So yeah. without, uh, without naming numbers, how did, uh, how did the, the money that you asked for and presumably 
got? How did that compare to what you've been making as flying for these junkets and other airline stuff? Well, for the airlines, it was a little bit more money. Yeah. I've got the book out here, and it's got a contract that's signed oh, by, by Mr. Presley. I'll show tonight. And it's got exactly what I asked for. So anyway, that was the end of the, the interview. And we had no idea if we passed it or not or whatever. So we head home, and uh, about three months later or less, the, contra uh, the broker calls up, and he says, Ron, come down here. i got something I want to show you. And I says, uh, I'm busy. i got other things to do. <laughs> no, he says, I want you to see this. And I said, I'm busy. He says, well, you better get down here because i really got something to show you. It's something to do with Presley. And I said, oh, I'll be right down. And I walked in there, and here's this contract. And he throws it to me. And I looked at it for the first party to the second party and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> and I says, I could care less, but I want to see how much money I made. And it was exactly what I asked. I should have asked for more. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Now, had you seen the airplane yet? Uh, I had ferried it? it from Wichita down to uh, Fort Worth, Texas. But that was uh, it was an airplane owned by Delta Airlines that they traded it in to Boeing for a new 727 or something. And then I flew it down there and then left it and hadn't seen the airplane since. And, but when you first started talking to the, the broker or the broker approached you about, about flying for Elvis in particular, had Elvis already decided on that airplane or the 880? Because I read yeah. somewhere that he would have been looking at a 707 at first. Well, and that sort of fell he, through. he was looking at 707, but it was owned by uh, a gambler, or not a gambler, but I can't remember his name right offhand. Uh, they were afraid that the different places he would go, that they, uh, the police would confiscate the airplane. Wow. So he wow. decided, that's it, and he bought the 880. So, wow. oh, just just happened to happened to choose the, uh, the equipment <laughs> that you knew. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so the first time you saw the airplane, it was still probably painted up in its airline garb. I guess. It was just Delta, it was and it carried 120 airplane. passengers. Wow. Yeah. And did it, did it go to a uh, did you take it to some sort of um, sort of a refurb facility or something? Yeah, we took it down to Fort Worth, and that's where it was completely gutted and redone inside and uh, the cockpit and the whole fuselage and the paint job and everything. Wow. It's all done there. Wow. So <clears throat> tell me about uh, about your first day on the job. What's that, what's that like? Well, uh, we, we took the airplane uh, from uh, Fort Worth to Long Beach, California. We were going to have some modifications done to it there. Then we took it to uh, uh, New Smyrna or Smyrna, Tennessee to have it certified. And then we were taking it into Elvis, and we haven't met Elvis yet. And uh, so we thought, boy, this is going to be really interesting. So we fly the airplane to Memphis, and uh, no Elvis. So we waited uh, three or four hours, and finally security called us up and said, go on home, Elvis ain't coming out. <laughs> so next day, same thing. All day long, no Elvis. So the third day, the uh, security called us up and said, get out the airplane. Elvis wants to see the airplane and meet the crew. Oh, okay. So we go out there, and here comes Elvis. I mean, it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, and this is about 1975, right? 75. Okay, just setting the scene. August of 75. And so we had, all three of us were in a cockpit, and the door closed, and he toured the airplane. Now, this is the first time he'd seen the airplane completely done. So then uh, the other pilot went out to meet Elvis, and that was my turn. And, uh, I mean, here's a, a country boy, population uh, probably about six, 700, not only meeting Elvis, but getting to fly him. And uh, so I go out there, and he's got this big smile. He's sitting on the couch, got a big smile. And he says, well, I guess you know who I am. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, Mr. Presley. No, no. He says, none of this, yes, sir. None of this, Mr. Presley. He says, may I call you Ron? And I said, yes, sir. And he says, I told you, no, yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, that was the way it was from then on. So did you call him Elvis? Elvis all the time. Wow. You know, and he called me Ron. So it was it was pretty cool. And that airplane, uh, by the time it was done with the refurbishment, the interior was 
Nothing whatsoever like a typical Delta airliner of the era. <laughs> no. Can you describe that just a, a little bit sure. about what the changes uh, were the, inside? The cockpit was all redone, refurnished, and painted. And then out in front uh, in the cabin area, we had uh, the start with was a uh, uh, John. And then we went into a conference room. I mean, uh, uh, not a conference room, but uh, a setting room. Like Then we went into a conference room. And then we went into... Uh, uh, a bedroom that was a couch and a chair that folded out to a bedroom and then we had the back bedroom that was Elvis's and then we had the bathroom in back there Gosh. it's it, basically like Air Force One at this point it, yeah. well it was yeah yeah wow. uh, so you know there's a good question that we had prepared here that, I, that I'd, I'd love to ask is well, well I guess I'll start with this first can you tell us about just what it was like on a normal day flying him from place to place. What, what, what did that look like from, from your start time to end time? Well, uh, it depends on where we were going. If we were going to him putting on a show, lots of times we would just fly in. We'd take off out of Memphis about four. It depends where we were going and fly an hour or two. And then he'd get off the airplane and uh, limo to the Coliseum or wherever he was playing performing and uh, do his show get back right after the show get on the airplane and maybe go to the other place or if we're going to stay there for two or three days then uh, we would uh, prepare the airplane for departure and then leave and go to the hotel and then uh, every day we'd go out the engineer and I'd go out to make sure the airplane was still maintenance ready and then we'd take off and go do the next show and we'd done that for two weeks and then uh, we had two weeks off. Well, we didn't have it off, but Elvis did. And uh, during the winter time in Memphis, the weather is really uh, overcast and cold. We would go out to uh, Palm Springs. He had a house out there and spend our two weeks out there. And then we go back on tour. But while he's on vacation, though, is it does, does he then decide if he's in Palm Springs for two weeks, then halfway through he wants to go somewhere else? We would and, go. And you would go. And we were on course. call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. Did he ever come up to the cockpit while you were flying? All the time. Just about every flight. Really? Yeah. In fact, he wanted to, somehow he found out that I got a hijack story, and uh, he came in the cockpit one night wherever we were going. He said, hey, Ron, you busy? No, not at all. He says, uh, you, would you mind telling me this hijacking story and i says yeah no problem at all so i told him the whole story just like i told you guys you're, you're really painting the picture of somebody who sounds like he's polite and he's treating the people who work for him really well he did he just was fantastic absolutely i mean the things he gave away and the things he would do for us for example i'll, I'll, I'll just give you a little example uh you know sometimes these deals don't work out too well for you Either you don't like it, or they don't like you, or they don't like the airplane, or whatever. So after about six months, I asked uh, Vernon Presley, I says, how do you like the crew? How do you like the airplane? He says, it's fine. Just keep doing exactly what you're doing. So the next time I saw Elvis, I asked him the same thing. And uh, he says, just keep doing exactly what you're doing. No problem at all. So in the meantime, I had rented a townhouse. And I decided, well, if it's going that well, I'll just buy a house. So next time I saw Vernon Presley, uh, we got the bills taken care of. And I asked him, I says, say, uh, do you know where I can borrow some money for purchasing the house? Yeah, he said, just go down to this whatever bank it was a few blocks from the mansion. And uh, I said, well, can you call him and talk to him? And no, no, he says, just tell him who you are. You won't have no problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I go down to this bank, and uh, this guy meets me, and he says, uh, may I help you? I says, yeah, I'd like to see the president. And he says, what about? I says, uh, to buy a house. I need some money. Oh, he says, John over here, he does all that. No, no problem. No, I said, I want to talk to the president. <laughs> he said, I told you, John does the, the financing. And I said, would you tell the president that Elvis Presley's pilot's here? And... Uh, the president heard it. Get in here. Come on. So <laughs> we sat down. We talked. BS'd a little bit. And he said, well, I guess you want some money. I says, yeah. He said, how much you want? I think back then a house was 73000 or something like that. 
And he said, how much collateral do you want to put down? I said, none. He says, how much interest do you want to pay? I said, little as possible. <laughs> and he says, well, when do you want? No, he says, you want the money right now. I said, damn, no wonder you're the president. You're pretty smart. <laughs> and he says, hey, here, sign this. He signs me a sheet. I, I looked over at the sheet, and I says, oh, I'm not going to sign that. I threw it back at him. And he says, why not? I said, it's like signing a blank check. And he says, let me tell you, Ron. He says, Elvis has got in my bank a million-dollar checking account plus a whole lot more. Do you think I'm going to jeopardize that for a lousy $73,000? <laughs> I took the paperwork and signed it. Three days later, I got the money, no collateral. I don't. I think the interest was 3.5% or oh something like that. Oh, my God. And back then, it was a lot more. And that was it. Walked off with a check. That's just fantastic. Isn't it? Man. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way he treated this. Oh. I mean, uh, and I'll tell you another instance where Please. he uh, he wanted to go back to Hawaii. Now, he hadn't been back to Hawaii since he made that satellite blue Hawaii or whatever it was. Right. I can't remember. Uh, in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. So anyway, when I heard about we were going back or go to Honolulu, uh, I called Joe Esposito, his road manager. I said, Joe, I want to take my wife on this trip. Now, this airplane originally would carry 120 people. When we got done configuring it, it would carry 29. And he said, well, between Memphis and Oakland, where Oakland, we're going to pick up fuel. Uh, we got some open seats, but going to Honolulu, it's overbooked. He says, we don't have room. I said, are you sure? He says, yeah. Okay. So we go to Oakland, pick up fuel, four open seats. Oh, man, I should, I should have took a chance, but, you know, what the heck. So we get uh, halfway to Honolulu, and Elvis comes in the cockpit. Hey, how's it going, gang? I said, real good. He says, Ron, I understand you're a little bit, well, I won't use the word. <laughs> and uh, ticked, I'll say that. I said, no, I'm fine. I said, the weather's good. We'll be there in a couple of hours. No, he says, your wife, Betty, should be on this flight. I said, no, that's all right. We'll catch it next time. No, no. He says, uh, when we land, call her, tell her, get her out. Get out here. He says, I'm buying first-class ticket all the way from Memphis to here. I said, Elvis, I'm not going to do that. He looked at me, and he says, well, let me ask you. Do I pay you enough? I said, yeah. He says, do you like working for me? Yeah. He says, if she's not out here tomorrow... I'll find somebody else to replace you. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. Called up my wife. Said, get out here. Elvis is paying for everything. No. Yeah. So she walked up, got reservations, and bought an airline ticket. I wish I'd have kept the stub. I don't know. I can't remember what it cost. So she first-class airline ticket all the way out there. She only spent three or four days because she was working, and uh, we didn't know how long we were going to spend there. She airlines back the next, about three or four or five days later, we were airlining back halfway to Oakland. Elvis comes to the cockpit and he says, did Betty enjoy her stay here? And I said, absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, that was it. So the next days later, when we got back to Memphis, I had a lot of bills. I had to get straight with Vernon and he'd done all the finance and everything, all the bills. So I took it in there and then I had this airline ticket and uh i sort of <laughs> so mr presley you know uh elvis said he'd pay for this he said oh yeah i talked to nancy pay him so uh, elvis and i talked last night about it no problem just check. i said well don't you want to look at it and he said no nancy just give him a check that's how he treated this wow wow and it's one thing to to be gracious and sort of make that offer but then the fact that he talked to his dad and yeah. made sure to pave the way yep. before you had you know what that yeah. awkward moment of yeah saying exactly you know i hope he meant it yeah <laughs> i mean he, he that's the way he treated us that's that's really something yeah uh, so uh, so obviously you 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 only had this gig for maybe a couple of couple of years, yeah. Right? And uh, Elvis died in seventy seven, August of seventy seven. Yeah. And uh, where were you when when you got that news? Well, I was at the mansion because that mo that night we were leaving for Portland. I think it was Portland, Maine. 
So I had gone to Vernon Presley to get some bills paid and pre-bills and arrangements made. And Elvis had some real wicked go-karts. I mean, real. And we asked him, I said, hey, do you mind if we, hell no. He says, drive it all you want, anytime you want. And so when I got done with the bills, I went Jovi's go-karts. And really had a, a blast driving those things. We'd drive all around the mansion in front and back and <laughs> slide them around, you know. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And, that's so cool. And uh, then uh, that was, I, I don't know, 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning, whatever it was. And then uh, Vernon Presley was not that good of health. And I saw Nancy escort him into the mansion. And I thought, ooh, he don't look too good at all. So I figured, well, it's time to go home and get some rest for tonight. And I got home, my daughter's crying, Elvis died, Elvis died. I said, no, no, that was his father. Well, that was him. So, wow. Wow. So what, uh, I know the airplane's now on display at, mm-hmm. at Graceland. Um, what, what, were your next, uh, what were your next steps? What were your next few days like? Did you ferry the airplane somewhere at that point? Yes. Uh, and- we took the airplane out to uh, Long Beach and uh, picked up Priscilla and uh, George Hamilton and somebody else I can't recall at the time and flew them back for their funeral. We'd done the funeral and then we flew Priscilla back to Long Beach. Then I flew the airplane back to Memphis and then that's the last time I flew it. Wow. Have you been to see the airplane at Grace? Oh, yeah. Numerous. Uh, Two years ago, August, this August, or three years this August, was the 40th anniversary of his passing. So the Enterprise uh, invited me down there, airlined me and my daughter and granddaughter to Memphis, paid for everything, and it was really, really nice. Wow. Uh, So let's jump back real quick. I know we're, we're getting a little bit long, but I don't care. <laughs> um, I'm having fun. <laughs> we're all having fun. Uh, let's be just a little bit gossipy for just a minute. Uh, any other names of faces we would recognize that uh, that you flew along with Elvis on, on the airplane? Did you ever have interesting guests? Uh, Anne Margaret. Uh-huh. Wow. And uh, I went down from Vegas in the Jetstar and picked her up, flew her back. She was a great gal. Really treated us nice. And, uh, but most of the time we would only carry, uh, six, seven people on the okay, airplane. Sure. And you answered a question I was going to ask as well as that. Were you checked out? Did you fly the Jetstar? I, I flew, uh, only when the Jetstar co-pot was not available. Oh, okay. And, uh, I flew that three or four times. I didn't like flying that at all. I wanted to be on the 880. Yeah. The Jetstar is named Hound Dog, isn't it? Pardon? I think the Jetstar is named Hound Dog. Well, it was supposed to be Hound Dog 1 on the 880 and the Hound Dog <laughs> 2 on the Jetstar. But it, lots of times we'd take off with a, just the 880 EP, and then we'd change it in route lots of times to Hound Dog because the guy said, hey, you got Elvis? Yeah, you want to talk to him? <laughs> want to you know? talk to him? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, for that and up. a couple times he did. He talked on the mic. You know, so. That's awesome. Gosh, but I, that's I'll tell fantastic. you one other story is his girlfriend when i first met elvis was linda thompson okay and uh she was miss tennessee runner-up of 1972 or three or somewhere in there and uh, for whatever reason i hadn't seen her in about three or four weeks and we're sitting in i think it was long beach and uh waiting for him to complete his concert and here they come in to the cockpit they would always come in the cockpit when they came on and they'd say hi How's it going? Do you need anything? And then departure would be same thing. And Linda would always kiss us on the cheek. So I'm sitting there doing some paperwork, and here she walks in, beautiful blonde, uh, with a suntan, American Native Indian outfit on with a feather in her hair. And I turned around, and my mouth just dropped. <laughs> uh, Elvis looked right at me. He said, Ron, I won't use his word. <laughs> Don't even think about it <laughs> as if I had a chance. <laughs> so anyway, then we flew him from Long Beach to wherever, and uh, she came in the cockpit, her and Elvis, after we landed, and uh, kissed the engineer and then kissed me on the cheek. She whispered in my ear, "Don't give up, Ron. You still got a chance." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's fantastic. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, 
So uh, tell us then, uh, what was next for you? What's, uh, what's your flying been like, uh, you know, since 77? Well, uh, after uh, the funeral and everything, well, we buried him the first time at, uh, at the cemetery, of course. And uh, then I went back with the airlines, and I talked to Vernon Presley after about a couple weeks to let things somewhat settle. And uh, I told him I'd, I'm going back with the airlines, and I'd gotten hired, and I'm going to leave. No, he says, I, I'm going to pay you for a year. And I said, no. Uh, I said, what do you need me for? And he says, well, I need somebody to help contract this out because it's an expensive item. And they did. They charted it out. I said, look, I'll help you for a year, and then I'm going to have to move. And uh, he said, well, I'll, I'll pay you anyway. And I said, well, I, I'm going to live here for a year. I'll, I'll do all the work for nothing. And he said, no, no, I'm going to pay you. And I said, if you pay me, I'll tear their paycheck up. So I'm not going to accept it. And then I went back with the airlines and flew that. And then I flew the 727 DC-8. And then I went with UPS where I flew to 727, 757, 767. And then I retired with them in 04. Wow. And uh, do you still fly now? Nope. I gave it up. You do? Okay. I figured at my age, uh, I've risked just about enough. Well, you, you look like you're about 35, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I wish. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I wish all the women that. would say that. <laughs> uh, so, but it was a blast. I mean, I got to travel. I've been to every state in the Union, uh, every continent except the Antarctic. I've been to every major country except uh, Egypt, China. And Russia came close to China. I had Russia on the radar, but uh, I've just been so fortunate to fly, and that's all I've done all my life. Wow! All my life. That's from a little kid. That's all I wanted to do was be around. How many people can say that? Not many. Not enough no, in this world. Not enough in this world. You're right. Here, here. Well, that that is a an amazing story that you have, and we're so honored that you're here. Um, <laughs> Thank you for doing it. I I, I, uh, I I remember just hunting down. It's a funny story how we hunted them down. Was I uh, I went to Graceland with my wife, saw the airplanes, and I'm like, oh wow, this would be really cool to be have have one of Elvis's pilots be a speaker. Looked all over the place to try to find Ron after I found his name, only to find out that you've been an EA member forever and was in our database the entire time. So. Yeah. <laughs> you never know who's hiding in our database. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huh? I, if you're I listening, think, you might be next. <laughs> I, enjoy, I joined the EAA, I think, in 1986 or something. So oh, it's quite great. a well, We quite sure a hoop. appreciate your membership and support all this yeah. time. Absolutely. Well, that's a great outfit. Well, I mean, you. it's just unbelievable what they've done. So... Are you going to come back to Oshkosh uh, next month for the big uh, No, I got other commitments. Oh. But uh, I've been to Oshkosh probably seven, eight times over the years. Is this your first time here in the off season when we're or yes, when we're, yes. When and, it's not open, it's kind of weird, isn't and it? Chris gave me a tour, yeah. and I didn't recognize anything. <laughs> this don't look the same. And this corner of the ghost town <laughs> yeah, exactly. is this. And this is where the neutron bomb went off. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. So, so we have to ask you the famous story. Before we let you go, about going for a peanut butter sandwich, uh, can, can you tell us a, a little bit of? Can you tell it's us that true. story? Yeah. Uh, let's see. We were taking off out of Memphis, going to Denver, and getting these peanut butter jelly bacon sandwiches. They're about that big. Twenty-eight bucks a piece back in the seventies. So for those who can't see you, you you. Made something look like a foot long sub. Yeah, was that's the, the exactly shape and what size of like. your hands there. Yeah, and uh, so uh, we take off to Denver, and here this guy uh, pulls up, got the, and it was uh, Lisa Marie's birthday, so uh, we all sat around and uh, sang ha uh, Happy Birthday to Lisa. And I guess you know who the lead singer was. The damn sure wasn't me. <laughs> Pretty good guess. <laughs> yeah, you're right on it. So. We got that, and we were in the meantime, we were monitoring the weather. We were supposed to go from Denver to Long Beach and drop off Lisa Marie. And uh, the weather uh, was zero, zero. And this is probably midnight at night. So we invited Elvis into the cockpit. We said, Elvis, the weather is uh, zero, zero. We're not going to get in. Nobody's getting in. And he says, uh, 
well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, we can take off and we can go hold, but we're not going to get in. And with diverting this airplane to, uh, with you on board is a problem. And he says, well, just stand by a minute. So he goes back and talks to somebody. A couple of his friends want to go to Baton Rouge or someplace in Louisiana. So we, uh, he takes Lisa Marie, and a security guard, says, go to the hotel, get an airliner back tomorrow. And he says, for us, go to Baton Rouge. So we take off Baton Rouge, and Elvis is in the cockpit for landing. It's just daybreak, and he's in these pajamas, <laughs> you know. And he's sitting back there in the jump seat, and uh, we land, and we have no idea where we're going. We've never been there before. So uh, I asked the tower, I says, hey, do, where can we get some fuel? And he says, well, try that Texaco over there. So we go over there, and here the guy is, is a young manager, probably 30 years old. He comes on board, and then he says, all right, what do you guys want? I said, well, we need a little bit of fuel. He says, well, how much fuel you need? I said, 5,000 gallons. <laughs> and he says, well, who's, who's going to pay for that? I said, that guy right back there. Here's Elvis. Elvis Presley, my God. He shakes his hand, and he says, my wife's in love with you. He said, that's okay. He says, if I get her out here, can you, will you meet her? Oh, yeah. He says, no problem at all. Well, here's this lady in bed at 6 a.m. gets a phone call. You want to meet Elvis Presley? Now, do you get up and make your, put your makeup on? And we told him that we can drag our feet only so much. You better hurry. So here she and we, we just keep dragging our feet. Finally, security came up said, hey, do we have a problem? And uh, no, we don't. We, uh, he said, well, Elvis wants to go to Memphis. So we said, well, close the door and let's go. So as we taxi out, here's this gal. Stop. Oh. Wait, stop. You know, it was too late. We had to go. Oh, no. Oh, wow. So, so that's the peanut butter and jelly story. <laughs> that's hysterical. That is something. Yeah. And you had to tell us that uh, right before lunch, too. Yeah, I know. I'm getting hungry. We're recording get, here. That's, that's what me and Ron are going to go yeah. get for lunch. Here. You head to Denver? And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I couldn't eat. I took a couple bites. It was just so rich. (laughs) That's a complicated combination. Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot going on there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, Ron, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate you coming into town to speak at the museum. And uh, and wonderful that you gave us this opportunity as well to to reach out uh, all over the place to anybody listening who couldn't be here in person. So uh, with that, Ron, we'll say... uh, Thanks once again, and thanks as always to everybody out there who's listening. Anybody who takes the time to leave us a review on iTunes, if you haven't done that yet, please go do that. That means the world to us, and it's the reason we're able to keep going. Uh, you can do reviews over at Google Play, I think through Stitcher, all the other places you can listen to our podcast. Uh, also, we welcome feedback. Uh, feedback at eaa.org is a great email address. When we post these on our on our hangar flying blog at inspire.ea.org, there's a spot there to leave comments. Uh, so again, uh, thanks for all the great feedback. Uh, keep it coming because it's uh, it's because of you that we're able to do this show. So with that, we'll sign off and say that we're going to see you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.